Before starting this episode, I just want to make a quick dedication to Alex Hay, the creator of Toolbox Pro. Um, I just recently learned that he passed away after a battle with lung cancer. I'm sure many of you who've listened know he's been on this show before, um, but Alex was just an exceptionally kind human being, but also a really, really wonderful person in our community. Toolbox Pro was obviously a really great app uh, and a big help for a lot of people in the automation community. But beyond just you know the app itself and what you see if you're, you're a user of his of his work, he was the type of person who would reach out and uh, give you advice and constantly share the things that he's learning. Um, just a really, really wonderful person and uh, and a great addition to our community. He was just he was just very kind and uh, lifted everybody up around him. And so. I just wanted to throw that out there. I'm not. I'm not good at uh, eulogies. I'll link you to uh, Max Stories. Wrote up a really wonderful um, remembrance of him. And uh, Max Stories is also making donations to the American Cancer Society and Cancer Research UK in Alex's name. Um, I'm going to do the same. I'll include links uh, both to the Max Stories piece and to both of those uh, organizations in the show notes. So um, I would encourage you all to donate there as well. I'm sure. Many of you have also been personally touched uh, by the just terrible awfulness of cancer. Uh, it's the worst. And uh, so anything we can do to help out there feels feels like it would be something honorable to do uh, in his name, at least. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not great at these. I'll include links to Max Story's piece uh, as well. And we'll go ahead and get on with the show. But I just I, I don't know. I needed to <laughs> put something out there because. Alex, Alex, I mean, yeah, he was, he was a wonderful person and it really sucks to lose somebody like that so soon. So, um, all right, we're going to go with the show. Music's going to start. Sorry for the awkward transition, but, uh, yeah, here we go. Welcome to launched. I'm Charlie Chapman. And today I'm excited to bring you the developer behind the sheet music reader app for score, Justin Bianco. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, as maybe you can already hear, but uh, I'm recovering from being a little sick, so my throat is a little scratchy. Uh, hopefully, there won't be too many coughs or anything, or if there are, my editor can bring them out. So apologies for anybody listening if you have to hear that. But I think I, I'm at least at regular energy level uh, now, so we, we should be good to go. We'll see about halfway through if I have to like sit down and, you know... Uh, I'm just adding one word uh, anecdotes in here to to keep you going, but <laughs> <laughs> I think we should be good. So before we get into Fourscore and uh, and your you know app development, let's talk about your career that sort of led you up to that. So the the three questions I always ask uh, to kick things off is where are you from? Uh, do you have a formal education related to what you do? And then we can talk about your career that led to Fourscore itself. Sure. Well, I was born in South Africa and my family is from South Africa and they moved to California when I was a baby. So I grew up in California, um, went off to boarding school in Iowa, basically lived on a commune for four years, which was a, a different experience with my high school graduating class of nine people. Oh, wow. uh, and then went off to Portland, uh, bounced between Portland and San Francisco and ended up here uh, in Portland for a long time. And, and now I'm just outside of Portland in Vancouver. Vancouver, like Oregon? Yes. Is there a Vancouver, Oregon? Vancouver, Washington is just across the Columbia from Portland. Wow, that's really confusing. Uh <laughs> it is. So you're, you're in the Pacific Northwest, but not in Canada, but you're in Vancouver. Yeah, I, I, there's, a, there's a shirt I saw once. I think it was um, Vancouver, not BC. Clark County, not LV, uh, <laughs> Washington, not DC. Yes, <laughs> that's uh, that's awesome. At least at, at least the landscape, you know, is, is similar between them all. So uh, I at least have a visual there. <laughs> so uh, in terms of formal education, I have no formal education in programming. I went to school for a number of different things for different amounts of time with varying levels of success. Uh, but I am self-taught, so uh, nothing, nothing in my trajectory that led me uh, specifically to programming. But a lot of a lot of my background that did. So my my background is music, 
Um, I've been a musician basically my whole life. I played pianos as early as I could reach, as my mother says. Um, I started with piano lessons, added on violin lessons, and um, eventually dropped the violin because I think the violin is a, a really beautiful instrument that has to be played very well. And if you can't, yeah. it's uh, it's less not forgiving, fun. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I stuck with piano for a long time. Uh, I grew up listening to classical music uh, for for a good ten years. I I definitely was not into pop music uh, or contemporary music for a long time. And in my teens, I got really into electronic music. I started listening to Bjork, Massive Attack, and things like that. Um, and I got really into that. And that led me off in a couple of different directions. First, I was kind of experimenting in the, I hate to call it techno, but like the, the looping and the, the, the music apps that basically let you construct songs. Okay. And yeah, I, yeah. I think that I kind of approached that from a programming perspective. I took sounds that I liked and I was assembling them and I was coordinating. Did you have like composition background in some capacity before that? No. Um, so I, I play entirely by ear. I actually am really terrible at reading sheet music. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Something I, I'm still struggling with. Um, but it turns out that you can make a, a pretty good sheet music reader without reading sheet music. Turns out one of the many lessons I learned in my career. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, yeah, electronic music. And then I think I started to delve into music production and not just recording, uh, feeling a little, a little disappointed with my ability to capture my own music, my own recordings, but then also just feeling really not happy with the, the products. So this was, um, as I was entering the era of burning CDs and then print on demand CDs and things, the quality was always terrible. Um, but, but I always cared a lot about the, the cover artwork, the production and the marketing. And I think that's what really stuck with me long term. So it's the, it's the musical background and then it's the production background. It's how do you make a product and how do you market a product? Uh, production, not necessarily just the production of the music itself, but the production of the, the whole package both yeah exactly yeah that's interesting and was this this is like uh is this high school college like what time period are we talking about this is this is into college years okay so cool. er early 2000s for me so you're making your own music are you selling that i guess as like albums how how would you like how did you go about doing that do you go to like shows or something mm -mm. no and this is this is a weird thing about being someone who who makes music not live uh, is that you don't really have an opportunity to perform or to to be seen so it's a very behind the scenes thing and and so it was it was a matter of reaching out to people who were experimenting with the business model because napster had kind of turned everything on its head yeah so i got i got picked up sort of by a company called magnatune that was basically offering a, a whole catalog of curated music for essentially a subscription. Oh, interesting. And so I, per I participated in that for a long while, but the, the music never really went anywhere. I, th I think my solo piano albums have held up better than the rest. And if you are curious, please do not go listen to the old electronic albums. They're really bad. <laughs> I'm just going to say that now, but it taught me how to market, how to market myself. And I think that was probably the thing that I carried the most into how I approach business. That's where I was coming from on that. Okay. So then, yeah, what, what's the string from this point in your life to you're making, you know, an iPad app and selling it in the store? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I got into Apple products, I think 2005 ish, four or five, I think right around when the nano came out, I started to pay attention to Apple. Uh, I, I had had a Mac way earlier on a, a beige one and, um, and then my parents, who work in, in, uh, worked in Silicon Valley at the time, uh, got us onto Windows machines for a while there. And so I came back and I just started to be really interested in Apple products and everything from, from the packaging to the experience. I was really enamored with that. I think from the same sort of production and marketing standpoint, as it was just really interesting to see products that were created from start to finish 
to be really good. And I wanted to, I wanted to see more of that. I wanted to go in that direction. Um, so the iPhone came out and I didn't really have any ability to, I mean, I had done, I had built my own website. That was mm. part of my kind of tinkering background. Yeah. So, like I was familiar with code, but I had, I had no experience. Um, I, and the, the iPhone SDK rollout was a little delayed from the iPhone launch. So I just sort of sat back and, you know, I was really curious about it. I had an iPhone, I loved it, but I didn't feel like that was my opportunity to jump in. And then the iPad, the iPad was announced and I, I had seen it coming. I had seen the rumors. Um, God, there were like two, three years of rumors at that point. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was rampant speculation. We were all like making cardboard versions of them or using that crazy, mm -hmm. mo what was Motorola's X zoom or whatever it was called. And <laughs> yep. is this what it's really going to be like? Yeah, that was, that was a very familiar to the point in time we're at now, I guess, in terms of uh, how yes. long we've had speculation for this thing coming. Absolutely. Uh, so I saw, I, I saw that coming and I decided now's my opportunity. If there's a new device, a new form factor coming, the, the playing field is wide open. I'm going to see what I can do here. So I bought myself uh, an A-Press book and I didn't even get all the way through it. I, I got halfway, maybe two thirds of the way through it. And I thought, you know what? I think I, I think I get it enough. I think I can cobble something together. Like you were like, all right, iPads here. I want to make an app for this thing. I'm going to buy a book on how to make apps. Like that was the sort of level. It wasn't like there was a specific app you wanted to make, but the first step was, I just want to make something for it. And so first I need to learn how to. Well, and this was before the iPad really had been unveiled. So I still didn't really know what it was going to be or what it could do. Ah, okay. Okay. So I, I had some, some inklings of what I could do, but I was going to leave the specific product out and just do the, the groundwork, yeah, do yeah. The, the, the homework first and to, to catch up on the things that I needed to know that I had not learned yet. So back then it was all retain and release and all of the fun stuff. Yeah. That's, that's like jumping right into the deep end in terms of, uh, oh, yeah. learning programming. There was so little you could do at that yeah, point that's with true. the SDKs. Um, it was hard, but not complex, I guess. It was a more constrained environment. It, it was uh, unintuitive. <laughs> so then the iPad was unveiled, I think in January. And I just, I knew sheet music was the thing. I knew that was what was going on that screen. If I wasn't going to do it, someone was. Did you already have that in mind? Like, wh what's the jump there? Because you said you didn't really... It's not like you were regularly using sheet music and thinking, I wish I had this on my iPad. So how'd you get to that point? Right. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to learn to read sheet music better. And um, the way I was taught early on was using the Suzuki method, which combines sheet music with audio tapes to, to let you play by ear if you feel like that's more natural, but to try to underscore that, sorry, with the <laughs> notation as well. Uh, so I was familiar with sheet music. I knew how sheet music worked. I, I did have a, a basic ability to read it. And so I figured th this just, this makes sense, but also I could use this. I could learn. Yeah. I could get better at this. So I started piecing together a, basically a PDF sheet music reader, a, a PDF app, um, because I, I figured there's a lot of a lot of different ways of expressing musical notation. And I don't know the first thing about really how that, how that works. And there's so much nuance there that um, I, I could take this device and the PDFs that people already had on hand and I could combine them very quickly and I right. could see what that turned into. And that can express all of the complicated variations of sheet music. Exactly. Obviously, because at the end of the day, it's essentially a bitmap. Mm -hmm. Or I guess it could be vector, but point being, it's it's infinite possibilities. It's meant to be portable. That's what the PDF stands for. Yeah. So it's it looks the same on every device, uh, which is the whole point. So I took um, three three ish months, and I built a PDF reader, a really basic PDF reader, uh, without having touched an iPad, without having seen one in real life. On like a, the simulator, then in the simulator, okay, yeah, yeah. Using yeah using these newfangled pop-ups and, <laughs> and all these pretty new toolbars and things that were exclusive at the time. 
I originally included a bunch of sheet music. I think I had almost 300 pieces. I included this library of sheet music and because there was it was unclear at that point if Apple was even going to allow the what they what was then iTunes file sharing. So I didn't really know what this thing would do. I I didn't know if people could add their own PDFs or if it was going to need to have this this backup plan. So I built it with stuff included and I got the basics working and I shipped it on April 10th, 2010, which is I I think a little less than a week after the iPad launched. And I it's a, it was a paid up front app as most were at that point. It was 2.99. And I just went for it and I figured, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to build the the smallest thing I can that starts to scratch this itch and I'm going to see how it goes. And it went, it got picked up by Gizmodo and Mac rumors. Oh, nice. Then a scathing review in Ars Technica, uh, which still worked, <laughs> still worked in my favor. Yeah. <laughs> it, it got the word out. Attention is attention, um, I guess. So. <laughs> uh, and, and I took... I took that and I took what I was getting as feedback from a bunch of very enthusiastic users. People people clearly saw the same thing I did. They thought this this needs to be where sheet music lives. And so they gave me a bunch of really good feedback. And basically for the next four or five years, I was just building out as fast as I could. I was doing like a two classic product market fit story where it's yeah. like you're just trying to catch up to what the obvious need is because there's so much. And what the and what the APIs would allow, because there was so much yeah, that yeah. the iPad couldn't do up front. So I was pushing two major updates a year, and that's basically continued on through now, and it's been successful. So I I rely on word of mouth, decided to increase the price as I went along, as I built it out, but to, to keep the paid up front business model, which I've largely stuck with, and to let people decide for themselves if it was worth buying, if it was worth supporting. And it was, and my success has just kind of been a dream. I've been so thrilled with everything that that people have given me, that they've supported me through, and that Apple has done to make the iPad more and more interesting as it's gone along. Yeah, so I guess rewinding it back a little bit, that that initial launch. Well, I guess my first question is, where where were you getting that sheet music? Is there like, like can you license that, or is there sort of a public domain? for that. I know classical music is kind of an interesting space with public domain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I found a bunch of stuff in the public domain from mutopia.org. I think it's the oh, URL. Okay. Uh, there, there's a lot of, um, th- there's a, a much better database of public domain scores called IMSLP, but they are uh, for the most part scans. They're high DPI archival scans. And that sounds great, but you load that onto an iPad once you've launched your app and you've finally gotten your hands on an iPad and you can actually test performance and it turns out that 600 DPI scores yeah. <laughs> don't don't load very fast, that that's a problem. So I stuck with the Mutopia scores because those were, were created from digital sourcing. Right. So they were vector-based instead of um, bitmapped. Uh, they loaded much faster. They were much smaller. And that that was the easy place to go for that. How were you sort of marketing it at first then? Was it, were you doing like sort of pushing out to the press? Did you have like a hook or was it really like sheet music belongs on this device and, you know, Apple picked up on that and promoted it or something. And that's where it sort of got the snowball going. I think the, the key for, for Fourscore was that there were a couple of proof of concept ideas that immediately signaled from 1.0 that signaled that this was not just sheet music on a screen, that there was more that you could do with this. So the first one is links. Links let you create two dots, essentially, a a little round button on a page that takes you to another spot on another page or even on the same page. So in, in sheet music, you have repeats where at a certain point, you're supposed to go back to another point and replay or jump forward. So it's a way of uh, using less paper, uh, avoiding reprinting the same thing over and over again to make it all sequential. And it, it's just up to the player to jump back and forth as needed. So this is a great way to to make that interactive. You literally touch it and it takes you to where you're supposed to go and shows you where to start playing. Did it like pop a highlight or something in that spot? Yeah. That's cool. And that's that's like an example of 
here's an actual advantage other than the fact that you don't have to carry around all this paper. It's an advantage of this digital version versus a, a paper version where you actually have to flip back pages. Yeah. And, um, the, I think there's one or two other ones. One would be the, the visual metronome. So instead of playing a, a tick sound, it pulsed a, a border around the edge of the page. So this border would flash in and then fade out, flash in and fade out. So it would help you keep time visually without having the audio. Um, and then the other one is, the, I think, half page turns were, were pretty great. Uh, essentially lets you rip the page in half through the through the middle horizontally so you're playing and you you're reading towards the bottom of the page you can turn the page without removing what you're playing from the screen so you you rip it in half so that you can go from reading the bottom of one page immediately to the top of the next page but you're not using some animation to get in your way or losing your place uh so it leaves the bottom that you're playing and replaces just the top part yeah, exactly. Just the top half. Okay. And so those are all in version one. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Um, I think half page turns came in a point release and they were not right at the start, but they were there early on. So I wanted to just show people that there were there were things that you could do even with a dumb PDF reader that, that doesn't know anything about the actual musical content on the page, that there are things that you can do that make the process of reading from sheet music easier and to augment it with some really interesting stuff, which of course eventually ballooned into other things like annotation with Apple Pencil. It's interesting. Like you keep calling it a dumb PDF reader, but it really is. It's like a specialized PDF reader. It's like Mm -hmm. at that stage, it might not be aware of the music itself, but it's a whole bunch of dedicated infrastructure to make using it for sheet music make way more sense than if you were to use Mm -hmm. any other pdf reader obviously it wouldn't even remotely have the same type of functionality yeah and the the big one that i haven't talked about yet is organization so foursquare lets you categorize your your pdfs by values like composer Mm. add keywords add add a key um, add a reference number and you can you can use those pieces of metadata as as cross sections to hone in on what you're looking for uh, through a variety of different ways of browsing. So it's it really is an organizer and an augmenter uh, in addition to being a viewer, which I, I think I think works really well in this case. I think it's a it's a great way of taking, again, the information that people already have, PDFs, and giving them an, a new a new life, giving them a new environment to really excel. That's awesome. You said it it took off pretty much right away. What is what does takeoff mean though in that case? Like, were, were you able to make this kind of your full time job pretty quickly? I was working retail, and I was planning on quitting um, if it was successful. I was going to quit and dedicate myself to it full time um, within a couple of months, and I I pushed that forward um, much closer to launch date because the moment I released it, it was it was easily eclipsing what I was making in retail. It it caught on financially. It garnered support, it garnered enthusiasm, feedback, everything just caught fire all at once. And and it was amazing. <laughs> That's crazy. What do you think like drove that? Was part of it getting in there at sort of the feeding frenzy at the very beginning where people are getting this new device and they're just looking for stuff uh, for it? Yeah, it was the right idea at the right time. I think both of those things were absolutely key. You can You can create something that's sort of ephemeral or fun. And if you get it at the right time, you can be a blip. You can get the attention, you can get the downloads, you can get some money, but it fades. And if you have the right idea, but you don't really execute, you don't push, you don't get there pretty early on, other people will claim that space and you just kind of lose out. So I, I think it was the right combination of both of those things. I pushed myself really hard. I learned as much as I could, as quickly as I could. I made the simplest thing I knew how to make and I jumped in on day one, basically. That's awesome. So I guess since then, so that was, we said 2010. So what is that, 14 years now at this point? Which you just released a version called 14, didn't you? So I guess you've had a number per year. Is that how that's worked out? I th- it's been 13 years, I think, in about two weeks. Oh, yeah. It's 20. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what year it is. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I basically do two updates a year. But once I got to version 10, I decided that I didn't 
want to get to version 28 if I could help it. So I started doing 10.1, 10.2, 10.3, 10.4. So I still jump up like to major versions when I feel like it's an extra special one. But at this point, the minor updates are the, the major updates. Right. Um, I'm, I'm putting a lot of big stuff in there as I'm able to, um, especially because so many of the interesting things that Fourscore can do that are new are tied to what Apple adds to their devices and their OS uh, without any warning. Like, Apple Pencil hover support turns out to be a really big deal for something like Fourscore. And I couldn't get that into the last update because they didn't tell us until it was released. Right. But uh, with 14, I, I could. I have to remain flexible. I have to be able to add things as I can find them, as people suggest them, or as they become possible. Um, and I will stop pushing major updates when I stop having interesting things to say, but so far that hasn't happened. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, yeah. And it helps that Apple keeps pushing new hardware that like sort of, even if it, the hardware advancement itself doesn't necessarily breed a new feature, uh, oftentimes it, it inspires a new feature that sometimes you look mm -hmm. back on and you're like, I could have done this before anyway, but this is what kind of jogged that idea in my head. So a constantly evolving platform is, is nice. I feel like for that kind of stuff. This episode of launched is brought to you by revenue cat. RevenueCat makes in-app subscriptions simple. Their platform lets you focus on improving your app rather than getting bogged down in subscription infrastructure. RevenueCat provides a backend and wrapper around Apple's StoreKit and Google Play billing to simplify the implementation and upkeep of an in-app purchase. RevenueCat provides out-of-the-box analytics for over 15 key subscription metrics like monthly recurring revenue, lifetime value, retention, and more. RevenueCat also offers pre-built integrations with best-in-class tools like Amplitude, Apps Flyer, Mixpanel, and Firebase, so you can connect in-app purchase events in minutes in a couple of clicks. Customers have been able to cut down on their engineering backlog, better understand customer behavior, and grow faster by switching to RevenueCat. See why companies like Notion, Visco, and PhotoRoom use RevenueCat to power in-app subscriptions. Learn more at RevenueCat.com. And thank you to RevenueCat for supporting this episode of Launched. So, like we, we were saying at the beginning, uh, this was a PDF reader with a bunch of stuff around it. Have you, like, is it still more or less a PDF reader? Or is there more and more of the sort of understanding and knowledge of the, the music um, in the app now? Well, in... 2014, I think it was, I, um, I, I came up with something called Reflow, which was an attempt to get sheet music to work better on a smaller device. Um, so this is some, some basic math that splits up sheet music into individual systems um, areas on the page and then lays them out horizontally like a, like a teleprompter and lets you basically go from start to finish horizontally instead of vertically. So it just lays them all out end to end. Is this, this is done on a PDF? Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So there, there's some ability there for me to, to futz with layout and to, to do interesting things. But at its core, it's absolutely still a PDF reader. It's a, it's a really great PDF reader with some awesome features that make it better than most of the alternatives, but it's a PDF reader. I think that core vision is still exactly where I started. So that's how you were able to enable an iOS, like an iPhone, you know, app, uh, is by you're chunking up, like you're you're figuring out a way to split up that PDF uh, viewing into an iPhone. Do do you know? Do a lot of people use that? Some do. Um, it, it's a great accessibility tool, not just mm. um, on on the iPhone, but also on the iPad. But I think most of that was was actually all done because I um, I had built Fourscore as a basically a seven sixty eight by ten twenty four canvas. Um, that the original iPad and most of the iPads for years, all of them for, for a while, had this exact same aspect ratio. And I knew that was going to change at some point. Right. And it did with like split view and slide over and things. And so I thought, okay, well, this I, I can't do this anymore. I need to become more flexible. Uh, I need to kind of reshape this app into something that is not pixel perfect. And so the, the concept of Reflow, the iPhone compatibility... And the split view and slide over compatibility, the the 11 inch iPad Pro, I think was the first one that really did something different with aspect ratio. That was all kind of at the same time, all all pushed for the same reasons. And then um, I made a Mac version too, which was um, unexpected because 
Apple just sort of showed up one day and said, hey, Catalyst is a thing and uh, your iPad apps are going to run on it even if you don't want <laughs> them to. So, you better get on that. Um, so, Foursquare became a cross-platform app with some some work. <laughs> I think that was all... There's like a, a clear line from, from 2015 to 2019 where things were really reshaped a lot uh, in some key fundamental ways. I'm curious about that. Like, I feel like this... Uh, we're in this sort of weird moment where the Mac is is sort of coming back. Like, not that it went away, but for a long time, it was like the Mac is sort of your like workhorse thing. And then you have the iPad and iOS for consumption. And they were very like separated. And I feel like recently, and maybe in part because of Catalyst and more of these apps bringing these together as like sort of a cohesive whole, there's this idea of like, you know, the Mac is like your input mechanism for organizing and setting things up. Like I do this for my recipe app. I never cook with my Mac, but I use my recipe app on my Mac all the time. But then I cook with mm-hmm. my iPhone or, you know, my iPad. Do you do you have some kind of like thing with that going on with the Mac? Or are there a lot of people actually using their Mac while they're, you know, playing music? There are actually a lot of people who use it while they're playing because there are a lot of people who use their Macs to record. Oh, so there's yeah. There's a, a lot of really specialized production software that just isn't available or, or permitted by the iPad at this point. So that does happen. Um, but through syncing, it really is more of an input device. People want to be able to organize their stuff, like you said, organize and input on a Mac and then consume on an iPad. But I think... I was listening to uh, the, the latest episode of Upgrade, and they were talking about why why did the iPad Pro happen? Why what is it good at? Was it a mistake to actually create this space in between the regular iPad and the Mac? And and what is it really good at? And I think Apple is blurring those lines a lot with the addition of of keyboard and cursor support. I, I think at the end of the day, there's not much that you have to do on one device or the other. Um, But I don't think that's a problem. I don't think these two devices need to be entirely separated. But I see that the iPad does two things really, really, really well. One is uh, Apple Pencil. Yeah. Is uh, note-taking. You can't do that on a Mac. Could you? Probably. You could find some way on on a laptop to support Pencil, but it's just not the same thing. In the same way that using a keyboard with an iPad is not quite the same thing as it is on a Mac. We're just more comfortable with it where it belongs. Uh, so Apple Pencil is one. The other is that the iPad is is something that doesn't require an input device. It, you can take this essentially piece of paper, this slab, you can put it on your piano and you can use it. You don't need a keyboard. You don't need a trackpad. You don't need a mouse. You can use those things, but it's approachable and usable as this thing you can carry with you. And I think that's, that is so invaluable and so unique to the iPad as compared to the Mac, um, that that's where it really excels. Including the price gradient, you know, it goes so far down the price range compared to the Mac with the same experience. Like, yes, maybe not as fast, but, uh, in the case of your app, I'm guessing, you know, a baseline iPad, older version even, is a pretty similar experience and can get you there in terms of uh, being able to use it, you know, slap it on a piano or, or on a stand or whatever, and there you go. Whereas, yeah, the entry point for a Mac is is a lot higher. Yeah, although the the top end of the iPad is Yeah, the, well, the, to- the iPad, that's <laughs> why I said gradient. It, it definitely go- it gets up there. I was going to say, especially with the pencil, but even at the base level... You, you can have the pencil now. Mm-hmm. And then you get some some really interesting features um, that start at the top that are working their way down, like uh, like the TrueDepth camera system yeah. and face gestures. So one thing I added in 14 is, uh, is, a, is a third method, but this existed before, is you can basically turn pages with your face. So you can turn your head or you can move your mouth side to side or you now you can wink. And you flip pages with this this video input essentially, uh, and and that's so much fun to work on. To be able to allow people who have their hands busy doing something else to turn pages. Um, and before that was with foot pedals, and those work great. 
Um, but it's just, it's really fun to be able to utilize that, te that technology and find new ways of letting people work with the app that, that give them more freedom in ways that they weren't comfortable with before. Do you like when you're building something like that, are you thinking of lots of different instrument types? So like you talked about, like you can turn your head, you can wink, like there's a bunch of different mechanisms because depending on what instrument you're playing, some of those may or may not be available. Do you have just like a list of all these things? Do you do you test a lot of them yourself or do you have like people you're kind of reaching out to that <laughs> this guy plays the bassoon and I need to go to him because the bassoon is weirdly specifically uh, uh, hard to work with or something? Well, I, uh, I, I do have instrument ADD. I've played flute, um, saxophone, uh, cello, all sorts. So I, I have enough experience with most of these different types of instruments to understand how you use them. Yeah. And then it's, it's just a conversation between what's possible as a musician and what does the technology allow? Right. Uh, what kinds of things can the camera see? What can it detect and how reliably? So you just kind of meet in the middle with those two factors and find something that works interestingly. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you, are there many, like, do conductors use this, especially now with the pencil where they're marking stuff up? I'm thinking back, mm -hmm. it's been a while since I've been in band, but pencils were always out and marking things up and there was, you know, lots going on all the time. I imagine it would be super valuable to have something like that, at least in the practice room. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the musical space is very, very varied, uh, very wide. Um, there are so many different kinds of musicians who use the app in so many different ways. It's, um, it, it's a little daunting, yeah. but it's really, it's really exciting to know that I can focus on the basics and they'll pretty much pan out. You know, Foursquare does a lot of stuff. I've done, including the minor updates, I think I'm up to like 220, 230 updates all time. So like I'm, I'm constantly pushing and adding. And I know that a lot of these things that I add are not for everyone, but I want to see what I can do. And I want to be able to address these different niche areas and to, to try and make their lives easier. Uh, but yeah, basically... Foursquare has popped up everywhere. I I had the privilege early last year of going to see a Bjork concert. She's my favorite all-time artist. And uh, it started off with a choir and the the choir leader was using Foursquare on stage. Whoa. And I just, I was like, okay, I'm done. I've done it. Wow. <laughs> this how is did my you, moment. <laughs> excuse me. How did you like realize that? Did you see it from the stands? Like, I, yeah, I could see it. And I was like, what's the walk through that? <laughs> yeah. Were you just like, oh, I wonder what she's using. And it's like, oh my gosh. Well, every time I see an iPad with sheet music on it, I wonder, and I look closely and I see, you know, look to see if I can see the toolbars or whatnot. But the, the thing about Foursquare is that it's, it is really designed to be as out of your way as yeah. possible. So when you are looking at it, when you're playing, it's just the sheet music pretty much. So I have to look for things like the, the, the page curl animation and the timing. And I, I know it so well, I can be like, Oh, I know that one, man, but that's I did so cool. actually reach out to the, the choir on this one. And I said, Hey, can I, can I ask what you were using? <laughs> he was like, yeah, it's four score. It's amazing at four score app. And, and, uh, and we had a really fun Twitter conversation about that back before Twitter was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, did you find yourself like, I feel like if I'm in that situation, I'm no longer enjoying myself and I'm just stressed out that it's going to like have a bug in the middle of the play. Uh, <laughs> Thankfully, it was a, it was a, a brief uh, intro. It, it, it was, it was actually on stage for more of the time. I didn't realize that the, the harpist was using it as well, and, which I've seen in some, some other recordings of concerts that she's done. Um, so I didn't have to worry about it in the moment, but, uh, I certainly did later on, <laughs> man. That's, that's really, really cool. So like you were talking about, you know, how many updates and, and features you've come out with, how do you normally track that? Like both your ideas and sort of different features as you're working on them. Uh, what are you using for your sort of project management? I guess. Text edit. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I am so lo-fi. Um, I, I have I have my little text document with line items of what I'm working on, and it gets uh, it gets longer as I have loose ends to tie up, and then gets shorter again once I've once I've done them. Uh, I I do everything the stupid way. It's not even worth going into because I would not recommend it to anyone. <laughs> but I I have my system that works for me. You know what I I know multiple people who it's uh, one giant text file and they 
probably save a lot of time that I spend in now notion, uh, over planning <laughs> everything. But, uh, so I don't, I don't think that's stupid at all. I think that's smart. And like, I try to simplify things where I can, because I do feel like you end up actually saving time whenever you can use more straightforward tools like that. Yeah, it works for me. Um, and then I have a dot question mark file, you know, 14 dot question or 14 dot X that has the like stuff that I keep pushing forward every time. Ah, that's so your when backlog. I release 15.0, that'll, that'll become the 15.X <laughs> at some point. I'll get to those. Uh, they're just, uh, they're loose ideas. They're, they're things I want to keep my eye on, but that I, uh, I, I don't think are important enough yet, but that I don't want to forget about. So that's just, that's the backlog. You said it's paid up front and we'll get to, I know there's another layer on top of that now. What, like one of the things with the paid up front app is you're constantly having to find, you know, new users. That's how you keep the business uh, churning. Yes. What are the, what, what are the things that you're doing for that? Both in like marketing and then in like feature development, are you picking features specifically to try and like make a big splash and get attention? I was for a while. I mean, maybe not to get attention, but to address the needs that I was hearing most frequently. Um, but after so long, I think I've tackled pretty much all of them. It's really hard to find consensus amongst my customers at this point for what's missing. So I, I just focused on adding what I knew was missing as long as I could figure that out. And I, I have no secret. I have no trick to maintaining a paid upfront app. It just worked. And as long as it continues to work, I'll keep doing it. And I'm so lucky to be able to say that. But, you know, it's word of mouth and it's a product that people need. And more and more people just keep finding it. And I know at some point the world will run out of musicians. Well, I mean, that's the nice thing about a small business like ours, right? Is there are more people being born every day and some mm -hmm. percentage of those people are going to use sheet music and some percentage of those are going to want to do it on their iPad. And so mm -hmm. as long as you can be small enough, simply the fact that there's just more people growing up in this space constantly is a uh, constant new, you know, fertile ground for, uh, for users. So it's interesting to hear you say that. So you, you'd say that you still focus on your existing customers versus focusing on how to get new customers. Cause that's, that's usually like one of the, sort of complaints about a paid upfront model is that you have to focus not on the people who've already paid, but on finding the people who haven't paid. I, I think they're the same people. I think that's the thing about it is that the, the needs that people are identifying as users are the reasons why other people aren't ready to buy it yet. Yeah, that makes sense. So it, it just works beautifully for me. Um, and then, but, but the, the biggest source of people who are buying Fourscore who haven't previously are people who just didn't know about it. So like, as long as Apple keeps selling iPads and showing people that these devices exist, um, there's always an opportunity for me to just expand. Um, I don't, I'm a weirdo. I don't do any sort of advertising. I don't game the system. I don't, I, I just make something that I think is really cool. And I hope that people will find it eventually, because I think that if you, if you basically entice someone to come to an app, they're going to they're gonna be a worse customer. They're going to have a worse time. If they're not ready to come to your app, if they haven't found it organically, I think generally speaking, they're not set up to be as, as happy with it. Whereas if you just make something great and you let people come along in their own time, those are going to be the best customers you can have. So I know that that requires that you know, I, I did the same thing with my music and nobody showed up because my music wasn't that interesting and that's fine. Um, you, you have to have the right product. You have to have something compelling. It's not a strategy that works for everyone, but I find that putting a bunch of analytics in your app, um, uh, trying to squeeze people, trying to upsell in, in ways that you wouldn't want. Um, I think, I think that's tough and that's just not something that I want to do. And I have the privilege of not having to do it. So I, I added a subscription to my app, which I think we'll talk about pretty soon here. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's supplementary. It's a thing that people can, can choose if they want. It's a direction they can go if they find it valuable. Um, and I just think that's the right way for me to run my business as long as I can. If it stops working, I'll do something else. But I showed up in 2010 and I said free updates for life 
because that's what everybody said. That's what Apple was selling. They literally said that on stage, free updates for life. And so Foursquare is this thing that, you know, I had I, I had an interview with someone a few weeks back who said I, I bought it pretty much on day one for $2.99 and here I am. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> you've lost money on me, but um, but that's how it works. And and you know, I think it's it works out in the end. If you keep pushing, if you keep trying to make something great, uh, people will notice. And you haven't lost money, right? Like that's the thing. You don't have a cost per user. It's not like you're running yeah, a, so a big server that you're, or maybe you are. Maybe maybe you're about to say reveal a big bomb on me, but. I don't have user accounts of any kind, uh, mostly because I didn't want to get into the business of hosting potentially copyrighted yeah. PDFs. So I, I kind of stayed away from that very assertively. <laughs> um, I think the the biggest hurdle is support. Foursquare is a really complicated yeah. app and it does a lot. And that doesn't mean you have to use all of it, but it does it does. A lot of people have questions, and so support is the thing. If you bought my app for $2.99, I made $1.50 off of you, and you email me and it takes me 15 minutes to respond, that's that's that. And I know that works out over time because there are more customers than there are people asking questions. Um, but but that is that is why I added Fourscore Pro primarily, was because support was becoming untenable. I couldn't constantly be answering questions for these people. Um, and, and I needed a, a backdoor. Uh, so that's, that's where the subscription. And Fourscore Pro is the subscription. Uh, and it's an yeah. add-on on top of the paid upfront app, right? Yeah. So I, I created Fourscore Pro for a couple of reasons. The one is, for, is support, as I said. Um, the other was to be able to essentially take some of my bigger ideas that I didn't think were right for the average user and to build them out into kind of a second, a second app without being a second app. I wanted Fourscore to stay easy to use, and I wanted things that were going to be confusing or too complicated to stay out of the way until you wanted them. So I created Fourscore Pro as this layer of features on top of everything else. I didn't take anything away, um, but you know, in in twenty what fifteen, Apple started saying well, sub subscriptions and services. These are, these are the things, this is where you should go. And they put their money behind it. And they said, not only do we want people to developers to use subscriptions to support their apps, um, because for some reason we still hate the concept of trials and paid upgrades, yeah. subscriptions are your answer. And if you use a subscription and you keep a subscriber for over a year, we will give you basically, we'll have our cut. Will go from a 30% cut to a 15% cut. Now, obviously, that's changed for most people. Uh, I'm lucky enough to not qualify for the small business program, so I'm stuck at 30%. Badge of honor. Yeah. But when you're sitting there and Apple is saying, not only do you have this ability to change your business plan, but we're gonna we're gonna give you, we're gonna penalize you if you don't, essentially. Right. You're gonna give you less money if you don't do this. And and that's really tough because I don't think everything deserves a subscription. And I understand why people have such a negative reaction to the concept of subscriptions. I know this is something you're going through right oh, now. Oh, yeah. I'm um, very much in the same boat. Yeah. So I I think I was as, as quiet and calm and deliberate about it as anyone could have been. I, I didn't touch anything. Uh, the only thing I took away from existing users was this expectation that if you email us any question, you will always get a response. And that was going to change anyway. That had nothing to do with Pro. I, I, did, I don't push it. I don't advertise it. It's basically invisible if you don't go looking for it. But it adds a lot of really cool stuff, stuff that might be confusing to people, uh, stuff that's really cool, like the ability to turn pages with face gestures. So I, um, I, think, I, did, I think I did this as in a way that was least likely to make me lots of money. Sure. And I got so much pushback right off the bat. Uh, now, I've, I probably had a lot more paid upfront users than the average app, so there were a lot of people to draw from. But just the word subscription came along and people were treating me like I had murdered their animal. Um, yeah. It, you, can't, 
you can't get through that. You know, I, I wrote this long article that it was basically like, look, it's optional. It's out of your way. You can still use everything you had before. It's $10 a year. If you don't want it, I don't want you to have yeah. it. Like, you don't <laughs> need this. Please don't buy this. Like these people were angry and I was telling them, don't buy it. It's fine. And I think that's a process that that a lot of apps have negotiated. Um, I think I, I was just listening to David Smith talking this morning about Pedometer Plus Plus yeah. and going through that same thing. It is what it is. Um, the the app market has changed. I'm a dinosaur with a paid upfront app. I love where I am. I'm I get up to number two in top paid iPad apps right now. I think I'm sitting at number four, uh, not in the music genre, but of all apps. It's really nice being a paid upfront health and fitness app, yeah. especially on the Mac. Uh, you want to talk about low competition? <laughs> yeah. I'm always like really high on the charts there. Uh. <laughs> But, but that's not where the market has gone and that's right. not what Apple is is pushing. And it's really hard that um, that especially indie app developers don't really have much of a choice. At some point, eventually, you will probably end up with a subscription. Customers will not like that. And you have to figure it out. Uh, I, I wish there was some marketing that Apple could do that could help people understand why this is not as bad as it sounds. Uh, but But they just kind of leave us out there to figure it out for ourselves. Uh, and then the big companies just squeeze and squeeze without without worry. <laughs> now, after you know the initial phase and deluge of anger came, uh, did have things kind of settled down, or do you still get a lot of not so great feedback on that? It gets better. <laughs> you guys can't see his face. It, he just gave me a very, uh, you know, paternal, like, don't worry. Don't worry, child. It'll get better. <laughs> it does, though. It settles really nicely. I think at the end of the day, if you are offering something valuable, people want to support it. And I've got, I've got a nice, steady little layer of income that comes specifically from subscriptions. And these people love the subscription. They love what it offers. And I keep adding more and they keep telling me how great it is. And I'm, I'm so happy with it all. It, it does work in the end. Uh, it's just, it's tough to take those people who aren't, who, who don't want what you're selling, yeah. the people who aren't your customers and to set them aside and say, that's okay. You have to just ignore them and push through because they don't have anything to offer anyway, <laughs> besides criticism. <laughs> That's always been the struggle, like always me watching this from afar, everything's a lot easier, you know, right? Because uh, you don't have the emotions going, but it's always been like, like you said at the beginning, I am extremely sympathetic to people who are upset because like you just said, these people, like maybe they were your customer and now they're not. And that like, that's mm -hmm. a sucky feeling, right? Is like you had a piece of software that was tailored to you and now it is moving away from you in a way that kind of leaves you behind. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I'm very sympathetic to that, to that feeling. Yeah. It's hard being the person talking to them to, to just set them aside. Like, I don't know. You don't want to like ignore people or, or uh, downplay their feelings, but you also have to like, absolutely set aside those feelings and, uh, you know, think through it. And if this is the decision you're making, you have to go with it. It kind of helps right now. Like the fate, I mean, I'm in, a real bad place with <laughs> with the transition but uh it's in it's in test flight and i have gotten quite a number of people who are very upset at me in test flight feedback because there's mm -hmm. a subscription which they they don't even have to pay for one they never paid for it in the first place because it was right <laughs> it's a free like i was very open with my beta so they were on a free beta they never paid and mm -hmm. you can upgrade for free which i get is not necessarily clear but it's kind of weirdly like prepared me because it's like okay not everybody's rational and that's okay. You just have to be okay with that. It's a lot better than having to show up in a couple of weeks and say, you know what, this, uh, this business is, is slowly drifting downward. It's not working for me. It can't support me and I'm shutting it down. You, you don't want to yeah. do that. I mean, we've, we've seen Twitterific and Tweetbot just all of a sudden light switch, they're gone. Um, I, I think that's, that's a, an aspect of indie app development that people don't appreciate that uh, not only is your business success not assured, but your continued presence on the app store is not assured. Yeah. Apple could at any moment just flip a switch. They could make an app that competes with you. They could just decide you're no longer welcome. 
Um, everything I've done has been defensive in that way. I have, I have developed features uh, with very little investment. I, I very much uh, in, of that immigrant mindset that you show up with your your penny and you double it, and then you take those two pennies and double it, and you see how far you can get. That's um, that's how I work. Um, I wish that I could snap out of that because at this point it's that's I don't need to. But um, that's the kind of the thing that hangs over your head. And if subscriptions are a way forward that let you do what you want to do and offer something interesting to people, then you should have no shame in pursuing that because that's that's the game. That's what Apple has said you can do going forward. And, and you should absolutely take advantage of it if you can, because people will find it useful. So you've said like, uh, you know, since you've gotten through that, it's created a really nice relationship. You have sort of a consistent income coming from subscribers and then you still presumably also have new people coming in with the paid up front app uh you feel like that's a really nice like mix that you see kind of going forward for a while yeah i i think my subscriptions are not um my subscriptions do not surpass my paid up front revenue at all it's um it's a significant chunk but it's not the majority by any means um i i think what is comforting to me going forward is that if for some reason I couldn't compete as a paid upfront app, that there is some safety net there, that I could push subscriptions if I needed to, and I hope I never have to, because I really love the ability of just lazily offering something like that to people. Yeah. So um, it's, it's a good mix, and I can tweak that mix if I have to, but for now, everything is nice and calm. <laughs> Does it create a kind of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but is it is it kind of interesting when you are working on features for an update, you have to sort of decide which bucket this kind of lands in every time now? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, it's it's tough because these are my little babies and I, I want people to use them. Um, but I also, I also know that this is work that I've just done. These are many, many hours of work that I've put into this thing. And if I just throw it into the into the everyone bucket, um, it evaporates, and that's that's not really fair either. So generally, I just I if it's an evolution of something that exists, if it's a tweak, if it's an add-on to something that's there, that's basically you get it for free. Here you go, good, you know, enjoy. If it's kind of an en- entirely new thing, or it's a different take, or if it requires a lot of work, that's when I I usually put it into the pro bucket. Or in the case of like drag down menus, which um, this is a, a fun little feature where you can touch any of the, the toolbar items at the top of the screen and drag them downward and get shortcuts. Um, they're basically contextual menus, but before Apple had done them, I created my own little version. And I knew that that was a thing that like, you know, my mom playing her harp is going to try to tap and open the menu and this little thing is going to jump out of her and she's going to say, what, yeah. <laughs> what just happened? Um, that's, that's an easy decision for me. That's the stuff that, that just goes off into pro because um, that's easier to explain to people who are actively looking yeah for those things nice i guess before we like wrap up is there anything in this latest update like you just released was it two weeks ago i i just Mm -hmm. got back from vacation so my brain's a a big fog but you just released a big update is there anything kind of interesting or exciting from that one that you want to talk about yeah um well i mean the big one like i said was with face gestures i added winking i i think that is really cool uh for people who who play like wind instruments, reed instruments, people who can't use their mouth movements or who can't like, you know, flail their heads around. Um, winking is, is a really fun addition to that set of features. Um, I had a lot of fun with that when I, I made, I, I commissioned a bit of artwork from Dina Rodriguez at lettershop.com. And it's this, um, this old sort of 60s style poster that says my sheet music just flips when I wink at it. Uh, and it's the, the cutest thing. So I've had a lot of fun pushing on that one, but it, it's just because I, I think because, um, because Twitter shut down those apps, um, I, I think we've all become aware of legacy and, uh, and, and I just wanted to kind of commemorate this a little bit more than I normally would yeah. and to have something physical that I could look at and say, Oh, I remember that. And, you know, I have a couple of those things that, that Fourscore was, um, a, there was a screenshot of Fourscore in a keynote at some point, and I've, I've got a framed printout of that. Um, I, I just think it's really, it's really great to be able to celebrate uh, successes like that. Um, but, but most of what's in 14 is, um, is really great 
uh, from an evolution standpoint, there's a lot of um, a lot of big changes that are really positive, but uh, there's nothing there's nothing groundbreaking. I think at this point, um, it's it's more of the same, and I I hope that my customers appreciate that because they seem to like it so far. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I like that point about uh, with the recent Twitter drama, us indie developers sort of having a little bit more. Uh, nostalgia for the past i feel like we all have been thinking about those early ipad days and yeah i guess you've been there literally from the beginning so that must have been even more uh more kind of impactful for you yeah and early on well basically from the start i was always i was always referring to myself as we as Fourscore the company i think that's a, a thing that a lot of people fall for early on uh and that that's not the right call these days obviously it's um it's far more interesting to be authentic and to to wear your indie app developer badge on your sleeve and it took me so long to to figure out how to reverse course on that and to be you know four score us we um and to just be justin on the internet waving at people and saying hi i'm me so uh there's a lot of indie app developers who are like doing a double take looking over at me and saying, who's this guy? Where did he come from? <laughs> um, but it's, it's been really great. I think, um, I think that my most important legacy is, is what I do, not what I, what I produce at the end. Mm. Um, and, uh, I, I really enjoy being genuine and authentic and, uh, and me on the internet. Well, I think, I think I'm one of those recent, uh, discoverers. I, I knew of the app, but I don't think I knew of, you until maybe during this sort of mastodon migration uh, thing that's been happening. Mm -hmm. And I've been really enjoying uh, watching the, this update that you've been working on unfold. Um, and it's cool seeing it's, I always love talking to people who have been on the store for this long and have so much more of this uh, sort of perspective. So I, I really appreciate you mm -hmm. coming on to talk about that in that same vein. Uh, I'll, I'll ask you the question I ask everybody else, which is what are other people that have inspired you? in uh, your work that you'd recommend other people check out? Well, I have a, a double answer if that's permitted. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes these get really long, so which I'm totally fine with. Well, the, the first one's kind of a cheat because uh, I can't really recommend him to anyone because everyone is very aware of him. But Marco Arment has really... Um, I, I've, I've always felt a kinship with him. I've, I've not had the pleasure of meeting him or interacting with him much, but I've listened to all of his podcasts since Build and Analyze. And it always struck me um, that he always seemed like he was me in six to 12 months <laughs> on his business journey. He was always just a little bit ahead of me. And I, I've, it's funny because I, I listen to what he's saying and I'm like, I see that. I see that coming. I, and I, um, I've always really enjoyed that little serendipitous coincidence. Um, but as far as someone that I could recommend, I'm going to go the musical route and I'm going to suggest the musician Apparat. That's A-P-P-A-R-A-T. Uh, he's someone that I discovered because he was being played on the, on the in-store speakers at a record store back in, I think, 2001. And um, I, I admire his music so much because it is very electronic music, but it's, it's got that sort of human touch to it. There's a lot of organic instruments. There's a lot of orchestration. And I think it's, um, I think it's just really compelling. And he's another one that very recently I got to see, um, but not live, but I saw a pre-recorded performance of his and there was uh, one of his bandmates using Fourscore, I think. Nice. <laughs> I couldn't reach out and confirm. Um, but that's, uh, that's another little feather in my cap. But, but uh, even if it weren't for that, he's, he's been a really inspirational musician to me for a very long time. Just looking at these album covers, uh, it already looks like something that will end up being uh, coding music for me probably later today. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this was, this was really, really fun. And, uh, you know, for me coming back from vacation, a kind of a nice, uh, re-entry into, <laughs> into the work world too. So, uh, I appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me and, uh, and I wish you the best of luck with your, with your release and with subscriptions. And I, I do know that that'll, that'll settle itself out, even though it feels like a, a big speed bump right now, it'll work out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Hopefully one of these days. I don't, who knows? Maybe by the time this episode comes out, it'll be out. Probably not. Probably there's eight more, you know, road bumps uh, 
on the path between then and now. So, but I appreciate that's that. That's the business. Yep, that's the business. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This episode was edited by Jonathan Ruiz. If you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C or tweet the show directly at launched.fm. I'd really appreciate a rating or review in your podcast app of choice. And you can find show notes and more at launched.fm.com. Thank you.